Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. And this week, we revisit a day of reckoning as the Chilcot Inquiry reported on the background to Britain's decision to go to war in Iraq. On Tuesday night, I gave the order for British forces to take part in military action in Iraq. Military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. To show at the moment of decision that we have the courage to do the right thing. I beg to move the motion. And it's been a period of time in which the decision to go to war has, on many counts, aged badly. The main reason we went into Iraq at the time was we thought he had weapons of mass destruction. It turns out he didn't, but he had the capacity. Troops onto the battlefield without the right equipment was unacceptable. And whatever else we learn from this conflict, we must all pledge this will never happen again. Never again. Must so many mistakes be allowed to sacrifice British lives and lead to the destruction of a country for no positive end? And today, after an investigation that itself has taken more than six years to complete, Sir John Chilcott released all 2.6 million words of his official inquiry into the war. And reporting on his findings, he said that Britain had rushed into an armed conflict. The UK chose to join the invasion of Iraq before the peaceful options for disarmament had been exhausted. Military action at that time was not a last resort. He was critical of the role of both government and the intelligence services. The consequences of the invasion were underestimated. The planning and preparations for Iraq after Saddam Hussein were wholly inadequate. The government failed to achieve its stated objectives. Today, we'll be digging into what Chilcot's long-awaited report means and what the fallout is likely to be. We'll be hearing from an academic whose work on the Middle East helped inform the background to the inquiry. Intervention can go badly wrong, even with the best of intentions. Influential former diplomat and strategy expert Robert Cooper will be joining me to discuss what lessons Britain should learn from the report. If you're involved in a really serious decision... It's not a bad thing to ask yourself, how is this going to look when it goes wrong and there's a commission of inquiry afterwards? And our own Matthew Simons will be joining Deputy Editor Edward Carr to explore The Economist's conclusions and our recommendations. Not just a set of specific failings, but also the behaviour of a country that's anxious about its position in the world. It's not, you know, never do these things. It's if you're going to do them, make sure you do it properly. So first, Dr Gareth Stansfield. He's Professor of Middle Eastern Politics at the University of Exeter. And he was invited to present a paper on the background to the war to the Chilcot panel. So, Gareth, you obviously know this material very well. What, for you, are the big takeaways from the report? And indeed, do they coincide with what the rest of us have been seeing as headlines? 
on the whole, I think the findings are pretty much as we expected, although I, I do think that they are perhaps more lenient on, on Tony Blair than perhaps many people thought they would have been. In what way do you think that they were more lenient on Tony Blair than some might have envisaged? I think the findings were sort of, un- they were understanding of the predicament that Blair was in at the time. Uh, and um, I, I think um, even though they emphasise how intelligence was used and misused and abused perhaps, and how there should have been far more thinking about the consequences of these actions than went on, and there should have been far more challenges made uh, on the quality of the intelligence. I think there is there's sort of an implicit understanding of the tension and the difficulty of the situation at the time as well. So do you think that the force of the Chilcot report is really on the decision to go to war and the planning of the war and that number 10 machine, how caught up it got in that? Or is it really about the fact that the intelligence was flawed and that the wrong decisions were made about the reliability of the intelligence? What would your pecking order be as you understand it? Well, I I think that the the way that the inquiry is viewed is that the first issue is the, is focused upon why did we go to war. And Chilcott is being very careful in saying that this is not a legal inquiry, but he's unpacking why we went to war. And in a way, the secondary concern is what went wrong, why did it go wrong, what could we have done to, to make it go right. Um, however, I think it should really be viewed the other way around. Yes, it is important to know why we went to war, especially for the families of the soldiers who died. Um, But as we face more interventions uh, in the Middle East, certainly, um, we are engaged in Iraq, we could be in Syria, we are in Libya, it's vital that we get a grip of understanding what went wrong in Iraq and what we could have done better, because we face with those situations again right now. But it's not inherently wrong, is it, for the British government to send troops into theatre? I mean, that's why they're there. So whether one takes Libya or Iraq. I wondered whether you felt the lesson was, as those who will want to make an anti-intervention argument will argue, basically don't do it. But what would the argument be for someone who wanted a more nuanced view of the deployment of our forces in foreign conflicts? Yeah, uh, Intervention is not in itself a bad thing, and, and there is a very strong um, aspect of international law and international doctrine, the responsibility to protect, that, that would suggest that well-placed nations capable of defending the human rights of others should certainly go and do so. Um, however, the, what the inquiry exposes is that intervention can go badly wrong, even with the best of intentions. And it is not a bad thing to be involved in Iraq right now, for example, against the Islamic State, but there are still um, consequences to that involvement that need to be thought through extremely carefully, that arguably even today haven't been thought through. And we've seen that with Libya as well. Nobody would say that Cameron was wrong in ordering the defense of Benghazi and the targeting of Gaddafi. Um, But there was still relatively little thought given to the day-after consequences of that action. If Chilcot is telling us anything, is to get that thinking in place about what happens the day after, because the day after can be far worse than the day before. Gareth Stansfield, thank you very much. Now I'm joined in The Economist studio by Robert Cooper. Robert's had a long career at the highest levels of the Foreign Office and he was one of the architects of the Blair government's interventions in Sierra Leone and Macedonia. He's also the author of the Orwell Prize-winning book, Breaking of Nations. So, Robert, you've come hot foot, like most of us, from hearing the Chilcot Inquiry report. 
What leaps out for you from these many, over two million words? I think the fact that the peaceful options had not been exhausted is a really important one. If you look at the, the Blair Chicago speech, I'm pretty sure that this said force should be a last resort. Uh, and this was not the case here. And force always should be a last resort because the consequences of force are incalculable. Whatever, whenever you use force, you're taking a risk. You never know where it's going to lead. I mean, the reason why the uh, action began when it did was because the Americans had sent a lot of troops out there and they were saying, we've got to go now because it's going to be too hot if we wait for another three months. Well, I think that's a really bad reason for having a war. But is that a reason for having a war? Or is that, as Chilcott tries to explore, the culmination of thinking? You mentioned the Chicago speech, put together very much with a view to establishing the principles on which Britain would or would not intervene in foreign conflicts, particularly those with what we might call a, a strong sort of moral instigation in this case, getting rid of a, of a rather terrible, tyrannical dictator in Saddam Hussein. How much do you think Chilcott was able to get to grips with the tensions that flowed from that view, the interventionist Blairs, when indeed I think we, we first met? Here, the real imperative was not initially uh, getting rid of a, an awful dictator, uh, the imperative was about, it was about weapons of mass destruction. As far as the UK was concerned, um, as far as the US was concerned, I think that the weapons of mass destruction were not the primary motive. But um, the, 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 the Prime Minister, when I first worked for him, the first thing he asked me to do, actually, was to write a paper about proliferation in the Gulf. This was way before the Iraq question. This was about two years, at least, before the, it was way before 9-11 and all of that. And uh, he had always taken this seriously. And the conclusion of my paper and the conclusion of anybody who thought about it was if any country in the Middle East, Iraq or Iran, gets a weapon, gets a nuclear weapon, and we all ought to distinguish always between nuclear weapons and other so-called weapons of mass destruction. Actually, only nuclear weapons are weapons of mass destruction. Chemical weapons are extremely nasty. Biological weapons are extremely dangerous. But their nuclear weapons are in a class on their own. Now, that brings me then to the government's approach to WMD, of course, hotly fought over ever since the war. Chilcott seems to come to the conclusion that people were presented with a certainty that was not justified about Saddam's possession of nuclear weapons. Do you agree with him? And why is everyone so wise after the event? Well, I think that that's true. By the time this all happened, I worked for the European Union. And the European Union had a very small cell which put together the intelligence it got from different member states and produced sort of joint intelligence assessments. And the person who ran this put out a paper on Iraq saying something like, everything points to Iraq having an active nuclear program, but we do not have a definitive proof of this. And that was, I think, probably roughly where we were. The story about the, the mobile biological weapon laboratories, actually that's not a justification for invading a country. Nuclear weapons is, biological weapons is not. But isn't there then a tension in, in your thinking as someone who's associated 
with helping the Prime Minister to prepare a case for liberal interventions and to look at the grounds on which these might happen and then saying, well, now I kind of see that many of these conditions were not met. I was involved in two uh, in two interventions, which you get, I guess you could describe as liberal interventions. Uh, one was in Sierra Leone, um, which sort of grew by accident out of, out of a series of accidents. Uh, and the other was in Macedonia, uh, which was to prevent a war. Nobody's heard of the Macedonian one because the war didn't happen uh, and it was successful. But those were very different from this, above all in scale and in what they were trying to do. Both were interventions which the governments of the countries eventually reluctantly accepted. But what I'm really driving at is, how does Britain respond to challenges like Saddam Hussein, not only on WMD, but the the fact that he was clearly, it was in contravention of of the UN, that he was not responding. He was behaving a bit like a a, a rogue leader. And I suppose what I'm asking is, what do you know now that you didn't know then? But if you take the WMD out of it, then I think it changes completely. And I think if you are Tony Blair asking himself what he should do, he's got two things in his mind. First of all, if you're serious about non-proliferation and Saddam Hussein gets away with making a nuclear weapon and nobody tries to stop him, then you can kiss goodbye to proliferation, to non-proliferation. Everyone will have nuclear weapons in the Gulf and wider. And the second thing he had in mind was the transatlantic relationship. It's clear that the Americans are determined to do this. Perhaps it's not exactly how I would have done it, but if America goes off on its own and does this, then that represents a break in the history of transatlantic relations, and I don't want to do that. Probably he was also thinking, Saddam Hussein is a bad man, and if you get rid of him, then everything will be better. He certainly tended, and political leaders always tend to do this, to assume that when you get rid of the bad man, everything goes well. And in a sense, um, getting rid of Milosevic in Yugoslavia um, had shown that at least things can go better when you get rid of the bad man. So possibly the wrong lessons were drawn from the earlier liberal interventions? Unfortunately, I think that this is a sort of professional defect of politicians, that they think everything depends on personalities. And it's natural to do that if you're a prime minister, and you can't blame them. But other people ought to say, actually, it's not that Iraq is a lousy country because it's got a dictator. It's got a dictator because it's a lousy country. What about the personal culpability of Tony Blair? For many people who aren't going to plough through the two million words or or so, or indeed be looking into the footnotes to see how they should perhaps uh, do a military operation in the future, we'll simply be saying, we want to know whether this, as someone once put it, this lying so-and-so lied to me. What is your view of that? I think that's wrong. He didn't lie. He believed what he was saying. He believed that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. If you say to me he presented the evidence to back up what he believed, that, I think, is perfectly possible. But that's not a lie. That's kind of trying to convince other people by means that may not be absolutely perfect. But the evidence he showed was still evidence. It wasn't actually fabricated. Some of it may have been misinterpreted, but that was, again, not, I think, his personal fault. But I think this is very interesting in terms of how we deal with politicians and the way that they operate and then how we bring them to account. Now, you make the case he didn't lie because he believed it. 
But we have an awful lot of body of evidence in Chilcot and elsewhere that arguments were selectively used, that those in the intelligence and defence penumbra who had more doubts were squeezed aside. So then I begin to, to wonder, someone who's not really yeah. given to throwing you know, beer bottles at, yeah. at, at, at Tony Blair on the grounds that he's a liar, but I do wonder what it, what it means if someone has auto-suggested to themselves a certain truth. There I think you're right that there's a problem with people who are powerful that it's difficult to contradict them and that civil servants don't contradict them and the ones who do contradict them fiercely may well get pushed aside. What do you think the consequences of this are for future governments? When we look at the parts I read in detail as I uh, sat in in the uh, inquiry press conference were really about the sort of tripos of blame, the intelligence services, the politicians, primarily number 10, and the prime minister, of course, and the generals who I think also uh, get nuanced criticism, but the, but it, it's quite uh, harsh in points. So are we any the wiser to where the apportioning of, of, of blame w- would lie and what we would get out of it in the future? I, I think if Chilcot says going to war is one of the most serious decisions you can ever take and you should be bloody careful when you do it, that can only be right. And this is not the only time that we've made this mistake. More recently, if you look at the way in which we handled Libya, I'm not sure that that was right. Uh, If you look at Afghanistan, you have to ask, was that thought through? Secondly, if you'd taken a poll of Arabists in the Foreign Office and asked them what they thought, I think a very large number of them would have said, I'm not sure if this is really sensible. What are you going to do afterwards? Do you, and does anybody involved really know anything about Iraq? But that really does bring us back to the question of what would you do differently and better? We know that there are those yes. who would say, some for more pacifist reasons, some because they the region is so complex, I say it's so complex, never do anything in it. In a way, the Blair answer was a bold one, wasn't it? Do something because we haven't got very far by doing nothing. Well, I would, I would, um, I would hesitate. Um, I think hesitating is really a good thing. I think Hamlet gets much too bad a press for this. If you look at the way in which Eisenhower conducted himself, whenever somebody mentioned using force, he always found an excuse not to. That was because he knew what it meant and knew that most military operations go wrong most of the time. Particularly as this report comes out in the immediate aftermath of Brexit, as European capitals are uh, are quaking there from a decision by the British electorate, it it does make one wonder, should Europe have played any bigger role in this crisis? And what might that have been? If you look at what happened on Iran, uh, where there hasn't been a war, there's been an agreement uh, for fantastically rigorous inspection. Iran does have a nuclear weapons program, unlike Saddam Hussein at that particular moment. That's been done a lot better. That was a reaction to to Iraq. And actually, it was launched by France and Germany, and then they brought the UK in, and the UK then played a very important role in it. What do you think that Tony Blair's view of the other European powers was at the time? Because really, as far as the public was concerned, they didn't get much of that until we came up against that UN resolution and the failure to particularly get the French on board. I mean, it's difficult to say he should have done this and should have done that because I wasn't there and I didn't know how it happened. I do know that there was an extremely bad relationship with Chirac over what was going on in the UN. And actually, we'd we'd been quarrelling about Iraq 
British and French for years. But nevertheless, the advantage of discussion in, in Europe, and I'm really thinking particularly discussion with France and Germany, is that you've got people who are not afraid to disagree with the Prime Minister. Um, it's quite difficult for civil servants to say, Prime Minister, you're wrong. They ought to say it. And I hope that Chilcot will make them feel that they're going to say it in the future more. Um, but it's difficult. It needs quite a lot of courage to do that. You quite quickly get fired. But foreign leaders can say that. And that's why it's really worth talking to them. If the only leader, foreign leader you're talking to is George W. Bush, then you only hear one thing. And actually hearing a variety of opinions uh, people who face the same problems that you do isn't a bad thing at all. This is the third report into the war in Iraq, by far the biggest uh, and most wide-ranging. But, of course, it's not your first report, Robert. You've come across them, given evidence to them when you were in the Foreign Office. What do you think we specifically learn from this one? What, what do we take away from the whole idea of investigating government activity of this kind? I mean, I've sometimes said to people working for me, as a general piece of advice, if you're involved in a really serious decision, it's not a bad thing to ask yourself, how is this going to look when it goes wrong and there's a commission of inquiry afterwards? Have we taken two million words to say, look before you leap? Yes, but if that makes the point clearer, then read them. Robert, thank you. Finally, we've been following the report closely here at The Economist for a leader in our upcoming edition. And a mastermind behind that leading article, Deputy Editor Edward Carr, got together with Defence and Security Editor Matthew Simons to talk about The Economist's view of Chilcot and its implications. Good morning, Matthew. Hello, Ed. Now, let's just look at what we think are the main lessons from Chilcot. What are they for you? first one is a specific one about how prime ministers need to conduct themselves. Don't enter into commitments long before you know what the circumstances are in which you may have to deliver on those promises. And you saw that with Blair very clearly saying to Bush 11 months before the invasion took place that, you know, Britain would be there, and then sort of repeating that promise again a few months after that. And while this was not in any sense a sort of legal commitment or anything of that kind, uh, and it was, you know, one that undoubtedly, you know, the House of Commons could have overturned, it was a sort of, you know, moral commitment. And when he reached the point of whether to send British troops in with American forces, if he'd actually said at that point, no, we can't go, then the damage to the special relationship, which he had put so much store by, would have been far greater than if he had not made those promises earlier on. I mean, he was he was caught in a kind of problem with the logic, though, wasn't he, in, in the sense that he, he felt he had to do this for the sake of the special relationship, which meant a commitment up front, mm. and then it was very, very hard for him to reverse out. Do you think it would have been possible to have couched his support for the operation in the first place in such a way as to be able to get out later if it didn't really work? I think it would have been hard, but I think what he didn't have to do was to indicate the sort of size of the British military commitment. There was what was sort of talked about at the time as a kind of Australian option in which we could have, you know, 
contributed air power, special forces, that kind of thing. We didn't have to put in a whole you know, division. And by going in as large as that, which is what the army wanted to do, by the way, it also meant that we were landed with looking after a large and difficult part of Iraq. Do you think that um, the institutions around the prime minister were in a position, the British institutions were in a position to put a break on this, should have put a break on it, could have put a break on it? I think one of the problems with Blair is that he's not at all process-oriented. So even if the institutions were capable of delivering, um, he wasn't very good at presiding over them or bringing them into it. But, I mean, what happened essentially was that there was a lot of lip service made about the need for very detailed post-war planning, how if you didn't get that right, it could be a strategic disaster and so on. But actually nothing sort of happened at all. I'm, I'm tempted when I, when I look back at this, I'm tempted to see this as not just a set of specific failings uh, to do with Blair and, and, as you say, the processes, but also the behaviour of a country that's anxious about its position in the world, that wants to demonstrate that it's still a force, that wants to be a, a big actor on, on the international stage. And to some extent, that puffed up its ambitions and led it to promise too much. Well, I think that there are sort of two instances in which you see some of that. I mean, first of all, with Blair himself, that he absolutely believes, you know, that Britain is a global player. But he also believes that in order to be an effective global player, it needs to sort of ride alongside the US. So I think that's a sort of key belief. And then you see it again with the armed forces, that they were very determined to go into Iraq, you know, big, as they said. And it meant this kind of appetite to take on a lot of the responsibility when actually there wasn't, you know, either the money or the plans there to sustain that. And when things got difficult, as they did pretty soon after, you know, the army kind of lost interest. But it it has an an ironic consequences in in two ways. One, the direct one, that that Britain is now less willing, and you saw that in the vote in Syria when Parliament voted against military action in Syria, even though it was a completely different kind of military action and much more modest. People still had had an appetite to it. But the second is having hitched ourselves to uh, the US, when the US then just had the same reaction pulled back, Britain's role was even more diminished. So it's, you know, ironic, the consequence of this policy was totally to go the other direction. Well, I think that's exactly right. And it's not all that peculiar that there is a kind of, you know, pendulum effect in these matters. I mean, one of the reasons that Blair was so keen to get involved in Iraq was because they had had the good experiences of the kind of interventions in Sierra Leone and in Kosovo. And the feeling that, you know, Western military power could be used to achieve important sort of good effects, humanitarian effects as well, was kind of deeply embedded. Um, I think now that we've had this Chilcot report and the lessons that it sends about the need for realism uh, when you apply to all these things, you know, the, the real sort of you know, message to me, I think, is you know, don't, it's not, you know, never do these things. It's if you're going to do them, make sure you do it properly. 
But do you think, I mean, that, that might be Chilcot's intention, but do you think that's what will actually come from this or this whole, the scarring from this episode and the lessons that prime ministers will draw from seeing how Blair's legacy is totally destroyed by Iraq? The lessons they'll draw is that you've got to be really super cautious about this and probably avoid it if you can. I can't help worrying that, that we don't overlearn the lesson, in the, in the, especially in the context of Brexit, when... Um, you feel that Britain's looking inward. Do you think, just to sum up, do you, do you think that that's a risk? I mean, I think that, that Brexit has been a disaster. What I'm hoping is that the government that kind of emerges from this sort of horror is going to be very aware of those dangers and will actually want to kind of, you know, compensate for them to some extent. Britain still wants to be a player, Let's hope so. Edward Carr, Matthew Simons, thank you very much. Well, that's it for The Economist Asks after a momentous week. If you've had any thoughts on what you've heard, do get in touch with us. We are at Economist Radio on Twitter, or you could email us the old-fashioned way, radio at economist.com. And for more coverage of the Chilcot Inquiry, do go to economist.com. I'm Anne McElvoy. Goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.